This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Enuresis is relatively common in children, and it's estimated to be present in as many as 5 to 10% of seven-year-olds. And this can represent up to 7 million children in the United States. As you can imagine, it carries significant social implications for the child. So is it psychological or is it due to some anatomic urologic problem? Are there risk factors for it? Is it treatable? And are children who have it more likely to have problems with their urinary system when they're older? To answer these questions and more, we have with us today Dr. Patricio Gargolo, a pediatric urologist at the Mayo Clinic. Patricio, thank you so much for being here to, dis to discuss this topic. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Daryl. It's my pleasure. As I was learning about you, I uh, recognized that one of your most significant accomplishments is that you were awarded the title of a super doctor and uh, one of the rising stars of physicians in Texas. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. I think we need more super doctors. Um, there's so few of us. <laughs> Well, let's start with a definition of enuresis for our listeners. You know, I, I'm a geriatrician, so I knew nothing about this in children. But as I did reading, I realized there's really hardly anything in common between children and adults with uh, problems with incontinence. So what's the definition of enuresis? Yeah, absolutely. So the definition of enuresis in itself is just the involuntary loss of urinary control. And you can have daytime enuresis, which is diurnal enuresis, or you can have nighttime enuresis, which is bedwetting, and that is dire, and that is nocturnal enuresis. The real definition comes depending on when the child toilet trains. So most children will toilet train anytime between three and five. Boys are usually a little bit behind the curve on that. And after toilet training and continence during the day, if there is involuntary loss of urine at night, that's when we would diagnose somebody with nocturnal enuresis. Is the nocturnal enuresis more common than the diurnal? So that's a great question. They can be certainly interrelated, and I know we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but certainly we probably are sought out more as pediatric subspecialists for the nocturnal enuresis problems, mm -hmm. unless the daytime problems are pretty significant, in which case, of course, we see those patients as well. When children with enuresis, do they have problems with their bladder throughout childhood, or does they, do they progress normally, become toilet trained, and then develop the problem later? So there's certainly cases where enuresis, whether daytime or nighttime or both, is related to a certain structural problem in the child's urinary tract. And that's why it's important when these problems don't, don't resolve on their own or with just very basic conservative measures that we'll talk about here in a bit, to have them seek out a pediatric subspecialist to really evaluate and make sure there's not an underlying congenital cause for that incontinence, which can certainly happen. When children get older, if they've had normal toilet training and really haven't had any other urologic problems, then we think that it's not that much of a structural or anatomical problem, but now it's more of either a behavioral problem or a central brain processing problem, which tends to be the main thing with nighttime incontinence. Okay. What 
kind of social impact does this have on the child during a very important time of their life when they're developing and establishing relationships with other kids? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there is a big social stigma, you know, which is uh, latched on to the diagnosis of, of bedwetting of nocturnal enuresis. And it can be pretty devastating to families. The, the main thing is that as a child gets older, and we usually don't tend to see this until they're eight, nine, 10, it starts to affect their social interactions. By that, I mean, you know, things like sleepaway camps aren't really a possibility. Things like sleeping over at a friend's house aren't really a possibility. The younger kids, six, seven years old, we don't tend to see that much of a psychological problem. It tends to be the older kids and certainly the teenagers and adolescents. They have a very significant psychological component to this. It really affects their lives. And the other thing that's important to realize is that this is a family unit disease, if you will, meaning it affects the entire family or can affect the entire family, even though you know the child is really the one with, with the actual condition. It can affect how parents interact with their children, how children interact with other relatives, siblings. So yeah, I mean, people seek us out for this problem. And unfortunately, even though it's very common, as you mentioned in your opening, people don't tend to discuss it openly, which I think even stigmatizes children and families further. Yeah, and I can imagine, even though I'm sure they don't mean to, this leads to significant frustration on the parents in that they've got to do uh, laundry more often and change clothing more often. Uh, that can be really tough on the kid. Yeah, it can be very, very stressful. And again, one thing that I always emphasize to these families and these children is that, you know, this is not the child's fault. It's, it's not a condition that they can willingly control. And I think, you know, they're not being lazy. They don't want to wet the bed either. And I think parents really need to kind of realize that. And once they come to that understanding, I think it opens the doors for some of the therapies we're going to talk about. And But certainly making this a cooperative engagement where the parents, the family is really engaged in this, realizes that, it, that the child's not at fault for having this condition. And that tends to de-stress some of these very stressful situations like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Well, can you talk a little bit more about separating out those where the enuresis is a psychological problem versus those who actually have some anatomic urologic uh, issue going on? Yeah, so that's a great question. So again, when, when we evaluate these children, we, you know, we take a very thorough history, primarily regarding to what kind of incontinence is this? Is this just isolated nighttime incontinence? Is this a child that was completely continent both day and night and then became incontinent at night? That's called secondary nocturnal enuresis. Is there some potential structural abnormality? And there's various that can cause both daytime and nighttime wetting. And there's certain disease states that can actually cause children to produce a ton of urine. The most common one is type 1 diabetes. So when we first see these children, you know, we get a very thorough history most children with congenital abnormalities or some structural problem are going to have significant problems both with day and nighttime incontinence and usually also urinary tract infections. That's kind of the big three things that come together in children that require further anatomical imaging and then, you know, we'll evaluate that with ultrasounds or other testing. You know, children that are continent during the day and have isolated nocturnal enuresis, we just have to make sure that we're ruling out a couple 
pretty simple things. We do evaluate the urine to make sure there's not a ton of sugar in there, for example, which would suggest that a child has type 1 diabetes. I have actually diagnosed children with type 1 diabetes just based on their enuresis, so it's important to check that. Is it common? No, but it's certainly, again, something that a physician should be thinking about, checking just a regular urinalysis to make sure there's no glucose in there. The other thing is, you know, is this a behavioral thing? Is a child just not voiding at all during the day, going to bed with a super full bladder, and then having an accident at night? On a related side, is there a significant history of constipation? If there's a lot of stool in the rectum that's going to press into the bladder at night, not allow it to expand as urine is formed while the child is asleep, and that'll cause incontinence. So again, it's just a matter of teasing these things out to see if there's things that are easy to fix, like holding urine, like constipation, or if this is something that's going to be a little bit more, more difficult or more involved to get therapy for this child and this family. Yeah, so I'm sure that makes it quite complicated. You not only have to be a urologist, but also be partially uh, endocrinologist, gastroenterologist, psychologist, and maybe even a little bit of neurology in there too. Oh, we do it all. (laughs) (laughs) Are there risk factors for enuresis? Can you somewhat predict that this child is going to have this problem? There are three things that are significant risk factors, and I'm sure there's others, but again, you know, as part of the history, we tease this out. One is a family history. There is a strong genetic component to enuresis. Uh, Children that have enuresis will usually have a parent that had it. And so when I, you know, have these discussions with families, I ask the parents, well, when did you outgrow this? Because it tends to happen that children will outgrow their nocturnal enuresis at about the same time the parent that's involved or the family member that's involved resolve there. So that's an important thing to know. There's other kind of stranger things like sleep apnea. So I always ask parents, you know, does your child snore? Do you hear them, you know, across the room? Sleep apnea has been associated with nocturnal enuresis. And that's an important thing to kind of check off the list when you're evaluating these patients. And I've had kids that, you know, once they get that sleep apnea resolved, their enuresis goes away. And the third thing we see a lot of is, um, you know, again, this is primary enuresis, not necessarily secondary enuresis where a child was dry and then became wet. And we can discuss secondary enuresis and the risk factors for that here in a minute. But the third thing is, you know, children that have ADHD and certainly children that are on medication for ADHD, not necessarily at risk to develop enuresis, but they're at risk to not be able to respond to the therapies we have available as much as children that would not be on ADHD medication. We don't know why this happens. We do know that nocturnal enuresis involves some sort of central processing where the brain is just not getting the signals that the bladder is full. And we do believe that ADHD medication and these patients with those diagnoses are, are at higher risk of being not receptive to our normal therapies. As a geriatrician, I used to work at the incontinence clinic for a while at Mayo, and basically at all ages, middle age and older, incontinence is much more common in females than males. But in children, enuresis tends to be more common in males. Any ideas as to why it's more common in males and when young? Correct. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, the fact that it's uh, more prevalent in males, we don't really know why that happens. I, again, the theory is that there is some difference in the way boys process some of this information versus girls. Again, we don't know exactly why that is, but it's, it's sort of the same idea, perhaps, that you know there's more boys diagnosed with ADHD. So is there kind of a sensory processing difference between boys and girls that would predispose more boys than girls to have nocturnal enuresis? We, we really don't know. Hmm. Is there a hereditary component to this? 
Yes, yeah, so there is definitely a strong hereditary component. You know, parents that have had enuresis very commonly will have a child that has enuresis. And again, as I mentioned, most of the time they'll outgrow the enuresis whenever the parent or affected family member outgrew it. Well, let's talk a little bit about nocturnal enuresis. What's the natural history of this? Does this typically resolve with time? Yes, it typically does. I tell parents that we have about, depending which literature you read, but about a 10 to 15% incidence of having the enuresis go away per year. Sometimes probably a little bit higher depending on the family history and the other conditions um, that the child is under. But that tends to be kind of the pattern, 10% per year. It's very unusual to have a child older than 15 with nocturnal enuresis. It's about 1%. We, we definitely see it, but it's unusual. And even those children, once they hit puberty or go through puberty, they tend to resolve their enuresis. So in the children that have had a really hard time and go into adolescence with this problem, even the majority of those will resolve after puberty. Any thoughts as to what percentage of kids with nocturnal enuresis are actually referred to a pediatric urologist or are a lot of these kids handled by primary care physicians? You know, that's a great question. I, I think it depends on access. Uh, you know, certainly in more rural communities where there's maybe not access to a subspecialist like us uh, in pediatric urology, I think, you know, family practice doctors and pediatricians do an amazing job of handling um, this on their own. I think when, when access is more readily available or when the child really is not responding to sort of the more common types of therapies, that's when they land in our office. But I would say we probably see a minority of these patients that are out there because again, as you mentioned in your opening, this is so common, you know, and we're certainly not seeing hundreds and hundreds of these kids a month. So I suspect that our colleagues in internal medicine, uh, family practice pediatricians are are doing a really good job handling the, the more routine cases of nocturnal enuresis out in the community. Well, let's say you are referred a child with nocturnal enuresis. How do you go about evaluating that child? What do you do? Yeah, so again, you know, it's important to get a good history. Like I mentioned, what what are their avoiding habits? What are their bowel habits? Are they having constipation? Are they the kind of kid that hold their urine all day? Are they having urinary infections or daytime incontinence? Things that would kind of clue in that there's another underlying anatomical reason that you have to evaluate further. All these children get a urinalysis, again, uh, to rule out things like type 1 diabetes, like I mentioned. And then, you know, the physical exam is, is very important. You can pick up things like spinal abnormalities that would be responsible for enuresis. So we make sure that we check the spine very carefully. Certainly, I've had children that have had undiagnosed genitalia issues like epispadias, which is a super rare abnormality. But in females, it can be very subtle. And that can cause both daytime and nighttime enuresis. So we, we make sure that, again, we do a very thorough history, a very thorough physical. And at the beginning, just limited exams, mostly urinalysis. And then we just kind of depending on what we find during that initial evaluation, you know, whether we need to do some further testing, such as, you know, imaging and ultrasound, uh, an x-ray, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, in your evaluation, how often do you find a treatable cause? I would say that probably less than 10% do we find something that is very obviously the problem. Uh, Unfortunately, I tell parents that, you know, nocturnal enuresis is difficult and hard. It's hard because we're limited in the therapies we can offer, but it's easy because we're limited in the therapies we can offer. So meaning there's just not a ton to choose from, but a a true anatomic cause for enuresis, it's, it's rare. We don't find it very often. Okay. So how do you manage these kids? Where do you start? 
So again, you know, we look at, at behaviors, um, you know, constipation is a big, big problem. And sometimes if you just fix the constipation, this problem completely goes away. The other thing is, you know, what's the fluid intake like? Is this child drinking a gallon of water before they go to bed? And that just simple modifications like, you know, slight fluid restriction, constipation management can be very, very effective, if not to fix things, at least to make them significantly better. The other thing that we really stress is healthy electronic usage, meaning that we don't want these kids on an iPhone or an electronic device into all hours of the night. And that really causes extreme chaos with their voiding habits. Uh, so we really stress the fact that electronics should not be available in the child's uh, bedroom after bedtime. And that has been a significant change for us, uh, which I think is pretty effective. After that, if you kind of go over all these behavioral things and everything seems to check out, and this is, again, just plain Jane isolated bedwetting, well, then we really only have three things to offer. And that's what I was saying that, you know, this is kind of an easy and a hard thing to do because we only have three things to offer with a couple other experimental things that aren't really proven. Number one is tincture of time, meaning we wait. We know that the majority of these children are going to outgrow this. So I tell parents, look, that's an option. We could wait, we could wait this out and, and it's going to go away. I just, you know, usually can't tell when it's going to go away. Number two is behavioral therapy, which the mainstay of that is what's called the alarm therapy or the bedwetting alarm. That is an alarm that's hooked up to a sensor, which goes in the child's underwear or, not, or, or on their mattress. When that sensor gets wet, a big alarm goes off. And over time, the idea is that you will kind of get a training down so that the child will know that when this, when the wedding happens, they're going to have this big loud alarm go off. And the one limitation with that is that number one, it takes time. It could take months and months and months. And number two, it, it wakes everybody up. So it can be very disruptive to sleep habits. If children, for example, share a bedroom with a sibling, it can be pretty difficult to do that, especially, you know, with school schedules, work schedules, et cetera. So again, some parents choose this option because they don't like option one or option three. And option three is medication. So we do have certain medications that are fairly effective for nocturnal enuresis, um, and basically they act in one of two ways. They either make the kidney make less urine, and so that's things like DDAVP or desmopressin, or they create a certain relaxation in the urinary bladder, so in theory the bladder could hold more urine at night, and that's things like anticholinergics. Sometimes we use those in combination, but usually the mainstay of medication therapy, if the parent and the child want to go that route would be desmopressin as the primary agent, which we would try. So it sounds like some of these kids may actually have uh, like childhood urgency incontinence, uh, kind of equivalent to that, uh, which occurs in the elderly. Yes. Interesting. Well, what happens to these children as they get older? When they have enuresis as a child, uh, do they develop bladder problems later in life? Yeah, again, assuming this is just, you know, classic primary nocturnal enuresis, not related to any other anatomical problems or anything. No, we don't, we don't tend to see any problems later in life with, with those children. Again, the only thing is that they do have that genetic predisposition for whatever reason. So I do tell them, hey, you know, when you have your own family, you will very likely have a child that has this issue. So be kind because you were there yourself. But they tend to have a completely normal urinary function, as, at least as far as we know. Okay. Well, let's conclude by having you give us maybe two or three key points which summarize our discussion on, uh, on enuresis. 
the main thing is seek help, right? If, if things just seem kind of like they're out of the ordinary or unusual, you know, we're always here. The pediatric urology community is, is very willing, able, and happy to, you know, see these children and try, you know, the things, again, that we were trained to do to try to make this problem go away. The other thing, this is more for families, is that, you know, make it as little stressful as possible. Because like you mentioned, you know, I have families that come in and say, you know, we're washing all these sheets. We had to throw out five mattresses last year. I say, keep it easy, make it easy on yourselves, you know, use a night pull up. Don't create situations where you're doing a ton of laundry. Again, this is not the child's fault. It's, you know, a processing problem. It will go away. We can, you know, have certain options to make it go away. But, but I really try to stress the families to, to just not make it a central thing to their well-being and their livelihood and to just try to simplify things as much as possible, mattress pads, nighttime pull-ups, et cetera. Very good. Well, we've been discussing the topic of aneurysis, its evaluation and management with Dr. Patricio Gargolo a pediatric urologist from the Mayo Clinic. Patricio, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. This was a fascinating discussion. Oh, thanks for having me, Daryl, anytime. Well, you can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.